Welcome to the Canteen Podcast, a show for anyone who has feelings about food. Join host Ali Houston as guests open up about their relationship with food and their thoughts on nutrition. Nourish yourself with the Canteen Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Canteen Podcast. I'm your host, Ali Houston. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and enjoy the show. And we are recording. And I'm delighted to have with me today Dr. Anne Childers, who is a psychiatrist, a US Air Force veteran, an author, speaker, and owner of Life Balance Northwest, which is a medical practice in Oregon offering lifestyle psychiatry. Welcome. Thank you so much, Ali. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been following your work for a few years now with great interest, and um, you've been an advocate of what you call lifestyle psychiatry. So can you tell us a little about your background and the journey of getting to where you are now? Yes, I can. Um, It really started in the Air Force, not early in my career, but in the last three years of my career. And I had been diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, and then I was um, assigned to Germany. Um, And so there, uh, unfortunately, um, I was prescribed, and I think the, the person who prescribed it didn't realize what was happening with me, uh, a little, a lot more uh, stimulant than I should have had. And uh, I got side effects from the stimulant, which affected my stomach, made it really hard for me to eat. So I started eating junk and lots of it. In fact, it got to the point where I thought Easter candy, oh, that sounds like a good lunch. Anyway, Horrible. So I I went all in on low fat, but I I did worse. Like I had no fat. And uh, eventually my my GI system just couldn't take it. And uh, I started even off of the medication, I still couldn't eat. So I was down to, I weigh 20 pounds more now than I did then. I got down to like 102 pounds. And things started happening, like I had receding bone from my teeth. Everything, all of the different systems started to um, uh, become marginalized in terms of health. And I didn't, it's funny, I was a doctor and didn't realize what was going on. It could be because I was in a starvation state, because people in starvation state have funny thinking. Um, But uh, anyway, didn't go well. So I got out of the Air Force and, and I thought, okay, I'm going to drink healthy drinks. I'll drink Jamba Juice. I later found out it has the equivalent. Some of the mixes have equivalent of 40 teaspoons of sugar, but I did not know that, right? And so I was loading myself up with fructose. <laughs> I think within a year or so, I had like a minor stroke. So uh, that was a, a basically a shot across the bow because both of my sisters have been uh, disabled by stroke-like conditions. So, so it told, told me, okay, look, this is the path you're going down. You're going to have to figure that that's out. All right. So I wasn't sleeping. I had the jitters. I was very depressed. 
uh, but didn't want to let on to uh, my boss at my job, who was very kind, very supportive of me. And uh, I didn't want to give him just one more challenge. And uh, so I tried to hide it. And eventually it got to the point where I was spending evenings and weekends in bed. And I thought that I was going to be disabled. And so I, I was too weak. I got myself a shower chair. Um, it really started going badly. And I was only maybe like 50 years old at that time, 40 or 50 years old. I mean, this is not, not good. So um, I ended up reading uh, a site called Weston A. Price. And they said, don't be afraid of fat. If, you, if you're afraid of fat, you're going to have poor nutrition. And I thought, ding, ding, ding. Oh, there's something here. So I started doing what they recommended. I started actually going out to farms, you know, that were two hours away from my home and getting whole Jersey milk. If you have not had whole raw Jersey milk, oh my gosh, the, the, the cream floats to the top and I just drink the cream. I just craved all of it, um, you know, and I started feeling better and I thought, oh, this fat thing is really working for me. And I noticed that my skin had been so dry, so flaky, incredibly bad, started to really clear up, especially when I ate pork rinds. It's the funniest thing. The, the pork fat just rose right to my skin and it got to the point where my skin not only looked moist without creams or lotions, but also uh, the shower water would just like roll off. I had like a, a, a protective coating between me and my environment. And I think that is how humans are supposed to look. The reason that I, I realized that having bright eyes, uh, not feeling uh, down all the time, not feeling depressed, and that, and I, I linked it to diet in dogs. I had been a, a, an animal behaviorist for about 14 years uh, before I went to medical school. And I noticed that the dogs that were the most beautiful were also the calmest. It's crazy. So you would see these dogs and they had such beautiful coats and you run your hand up the coat the wrong way and it just ripples back down if it's long. If it's short, it just lays down nicely. There is no dandruff. There is no problem with cracked pods or cracked nose, dry cracked nose. And what I found out, this was back in the eighties, what I found out is when I reached into the kibble, I pulled out fat. There was fat all over the kibble. It was chicken fat. That's what that particular manufacturer was using at the time. And there was plenty of it. And these dogs were ready to learn. They were calm. They weren't anxious. They weren't fear biters. Whereas the ones that were less well-nourished, and I, without naming the brand, um, had dandruff, oily coats. You see where I'm going with this? Cracked pads. So the mucous membranes, everything was not working very well. The nose was uh, gray instead of black uh, because it was so dry. And these dogs were very fearful and very uncertain about themselves. And so I thought, gee, why don't we look at humans the way we look at dogs, right? And more, let's see, I think it was recently they, they, they correlated uh, diabetes in dogs with a potential for diabetes in the owner. 
And I thought, wow, okay, now, now we're starting to get there. We're starting to get there. Um, so, um, so the diet has to have fat. That, that I learned. And I think that's where I went wrong because I found out that fat was so satisfying that I wouldn't crave. And it also uh, seemed to stabilize my blood sugars. So I didn't have the ups and downs because I had terrible hypoglycemia at the time. And my family has lots of it. Uh, my family, uh, yeah, my dad had hypoglycemia. He actually had a gastric bypass. Um, my sister has diabetes, you know, my mom had diabetes. My other sister, I'm not sure about, but, but anyway, we were all eating the standard American diet, the high carbohydrate diet. And um, so anyway, um, the other thing I, I found out by, uh, is about my teeth. So I had receding uh, uh, bone and my dentist said I was gonna lose my lower teeth. They're, they're still here, anyway. Uh, but, and that's what she said. She just was very matter of fact about it. She says, you have severe osteoporosis. And I had that by the time I was 45. Uh, I had the bones of an 80 year old. And um, she said, you're gonna lose these teeth. So I really had to figure that one out. And um, dogs, when by the time they're three years old, at least 80% of them, 70 to 80% have some type of uh, gum disease. If you look at their relative, the wolf, the wolf can live six years and never have gum disease. So gum disease is not part of canine life. There's something going on there. And if you look at the uh, foods that I was looking at back in the 80s, they were all grain-based. Um, now they're lentil-based uh, veterinarians are warning me about that one too. Maybe for the same reason humans don't do well with it. Um, anyway, so there's a lot of parallel between us and our domestic dogs. Uh, a a, a dentist named Hujol, I hope I pronounced your name right if you're listening, um, from uh, University of Washington wrote a paper on how uh, dental disease uh, precedes uh, uh, non-communicable chronic disease, which would be things like uh, arthritis and diabetes and you know the things that we have that we can't give to one another and um, and our diet influence so he says basically the uh, the problem with tooth decay is a four alarm fire that you can't ignore because once it starts causing pain your body knows it and so whatever foods promote gum disease and tooth decay, those are the things to avoid, avoid, right? Now, some writers will tell you that if you're really well nourished, you're going to be less uh, susceptible to, the, to those. And it's called, a, it's called a fermentable carbohydrate. But even the Hansa, which are considered to be the high carbohydrate tribe that's doing so well, they're having rampant tooth decay. So something I think has changed in their diet, either they're not getting the nutrition or they're getting more fermentable carbohydrates or they're getting both. Now fermentable carbohydrates are things like flour 
and sugar and jams and cookies and all these things that are made with grain flour. Those are the things that are most likely to promote tooth decay because they, the uh, bacteria in your mouth turn them into acid, which etches into the teeth and rots the tooth. And I've actually seen pictures of tooth decay in dogs. I really didn't think it happened, but I guess it does. So, um, so diet, I guess to sum it all up, diet is, is central. I would say it comes before exercise. If you can't build a muscle, your exercise is not gonna help you as much as if you can. And you can't build a muscle without having all the ingredients. You have to have the building materials. So many of us think that food is energy. That's what I thought it was. That's what did me wrong. I thought it was just energy. Okay, well, I get plenty of energy from Easter candy. Come on, people. And I'm young and I don't feel it, right? Well, I sure did. I sure did after about, I would say three or four years of that kind of practice. It wasn't totally that. Sometimes I'd go to a fast food place. Okay, yeah, don't judge. Anyway, <laughs> it was bad. It was bad. Um, I'll judge. Anyway, so um, yeah, but now I know better. I know that that food is so much more than energy. It 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 is it is the um, source of life. And I would go so far as as to say, even though I'm not a very religious person, I would say it's sacred. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's it's a really inspiring story. It's this kind of sad story in that you know it's taken until fairly recently for the kind of uh, information that Weston Price put out in the 1930s uh, to reach a wider audience. And it, um, it's certainly westonaprice.org is one of the um, sources of information that I first found. And I thought his initial writings were absolutely fascinating. You know, his travels came at a time, they were just in the nick of time because yes. If, he'd, if, if it had been someone else a couple of decades later, I don't think you would have the same uh, number of untouched uh, groups who you could investigate. And of course, he was the one who identified vitamin K2 as the one that was so important for, um, for overall health and, you know, specifically atherosclerosis, you know, heart and vascular disease, and of course, tooth health. You know, he regenerated people's teeth using a combination of uh, vitamins, including K2. So it's, it's, I agree, it's absolutely central and it's sacred to a lot of these traditional communities in a way that we've lost. Yes. Um, and it's also interesting that you mentioned pets. There's, um, I've heard that, uh, I've heard that, the reason you don't see as many Irish setters as when I was growing up in the 80s is because the major pet food manufacturers switched from corn-based round about then to wheat-based and the Irish setters are susceptible to the dog version of celiac. And so the, oh, wow. the reproductive quality just it was decimated and it's, yeah. it's much harder to breed them now unless you're feeding them properly. It's also interesting yeah. that now you get raw dog food at, you know, um, six, seven, ten dollars a kilo, you know, six, five, six, seven pounds a kilo. And people don't spend that on their own food, but they do on their dogs. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, yeah, it's it's really funny. In fact, um, one of the things that I 
open sometimes open my lectures with is a picture of a child sitting in front of some colorful sugary cereal and then and then compared to a picture of a dog uh, eating actually he's probably eating cat food but it looks like he's eating colorful cereal too and uh, I, I ask you know uh, why wouldn't you feed your dog colorful sugary cereal and if you think it's not good for the dog why do you think it's good for your child there there's a Madison Avenue is kind of got us by the gills so to speak um, because uh, and I'm using that as a uh, analogy for all of advertising uh, because uh, we are fed messages through the television about what's good for us and it's really hard to shake uh, once we've grown up on it it's hard to say oh well but I'm healthy why why were sugar pops bad for me back then um, so yeah so we actually have a which I say a distortion in the way that we look at food and over and over again I hear my patients say well I was hungry so I grabbed a bowl of cereal cereal isn't food it's not food and in fact very interesting uh, uh, I did some experiments with Cheerios and I found that it gave me a much greater sugar spike than Snickers bars of the same amount of carbohydrates now I am not saying that Snicker bars is the breakfast of champions don't get me wrong but it does have fat Cheerios doesn't and it still has the refined carbohydrates and what I found is if I took the same amount of Cheerios and replaced the skim milk, which is almost all sugar, by the way, and can rot your teeth, and I replaced it with heavy cream, which does not rot your teeth and has practically none at all, um, of the same amount of calories. So instead of 50 calories of skim, 50 calories of heavy cream in the same amount of Cheerios, I actually had, instead of this huge sugar spike that went well over 170, I had a very long, uh, slightly lower than 100 blood sugar lasting hours. Very different situation. Another comment is the, the food that I talked about that had all the fat in it was based on corn. And that's where those beautiful healthy dogs, that uh, was pretty amazing. So, it's, it's, so I'm really interested now in what you said about the corn. I'm going to start doing some research on that. But, um, uh, but uh, from a guy called Dogtor G. So instead okay. of Doctor G, Dogtor G. Dogtor, mm -hmm. uh, is, is, is a, is a, an American vet. Yeah. Right. I still wouldn't recommend corn because actually um, in 1912, uh, it was found that a combination of corn plus skim milk was the ideal ration for fattening swine. So I still have harbor some prejudice against corn as well, especially as sweet as it's being bred now. Um, but uh, for all of that, it's very interesting that the wheat is what the, did the setters in. And I later found out myself after that really bad time where I was so malnourished uh, that I also could not tolerate wheat. And I, if I don't have celiac disease, I certainly have a celiac-like disease because I had a very, uh, high uh, antibodies toward various parts of wheat. So I just avoid and I'm much healthier for it. Yeah, me too. I, I, I mean, my own mental health, 
massively improved when I changed what I, what I ate. Um, and, and I was diagnosed with ADHD as an adult as well. And it was kind of after fighting with my healthcare providers a little bit to acknowledge that there was a serious problem with my mental health. You know, I couldn't think straight. I was having mood problems. Mm-hmm. And I believe that there's a mixture of effects going on in diet improving the situation, you know, um, ketones fueling the brain and improving focus and mood, uh, yes. resolved digestive problems, um, yes. feeling better about, about my weight. Um, what do you think are the main mechanisms? Um, ketones is very interesting. And, and uh, there was a study done in... Uh, well, let me backtrack. So there was a study, uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, looked at the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. That was fairly recent. It wasn't up to date, but it was certainly recent. And they found that something like, um, what was it? Only 12% of Americans had a perfectly normal metabolism, right? When, When the metabolism starts going awry, what happens is uh, there's, there's like a cascade of events, which may be different for different people. But one of the things is we don't tolerate um, sugars and starches as much as we used to, all right? And eventually the brain gets affected and parts of the brain can't assimilate sugars the way it used to. So it needs some kind of alternative fuel, okay? so. Um, so what would that alternative fuel be? Okay, so if you look at this, uh, I think it was like 1974 or something like that uh, study where they had, I think, nine men on a metabolic ward who were obese. And what they were going to do is put them into, uh, into fasting mode, but they're going to fast them for like a couple of months. So... <laughs> This was when, so this is a locked unit and they can keep track of exactly what these guys are eating. And they can also keep track of all their metabolic profile. So what they did is they, at the beginning, they challenged them with the insulin to lower the blood sugar. And they lowered it enough until they got hypoglycemia. So then they knew that these people on the normal carbohydrate diet, were prone to hypoglycemia. And by the way, that diet was probably better than ours right now, to be honest. Um, okay, but they, so they got a piece anyway. Um, all right, so then what they did is they fasted them and they repeated the insulin challenge to see how low they would go before they had hypoglycemia. Now, a normal blood sugar ranges from about 70 to 100, if you believe uh, mainstream medicine, um, uh, probably should go no lower than maybe 60 and 40 is considered low. They drove their blood sugars down as low as nine. Do you hear me? Okay, and they did not need crash carts and they were still walking, talking. All right. So I think part of the magic, especially for us as uh, moderns with the, with the standard American diet, AKA SAD, SAD, anyway, 
those of us on the standard American diet or westernized diet, um, we probably do have some brain hits. And it may have come during childhood, it may have come, you know, at some point. But I think most of us, if we were to look at fun functional MRI, we probably have something going on there. The best way to uh, take the, the place of sugar is to learn how to burn ketones. And if your brain can do that, then you're actually filling in the gaps and you have a much more functional brain. Now, don't quote me on this or quote me if you will and quote me on this one too. I am not sure, I've not looked at the fMRIs, but I just, I just can't imagine, maybe it's just me imagining this, I can't imagine that anyone has escaped the problem with a high sugar, sugar diet or high starch diet. And by the way, I do equate sugar and starch, they both produce glucose. And I think this is something, this is a great big blind spot that we have that, that you look at the side of the package and you're looking at added sugars and you go, oh look, no added sugars, but it's made of highly refined corn. Uh, that's why I think we all should get out our glucometers, go get one, they're cheap, you know, test yourself at a half hour, an hour, uh, two hours and three hours, and you will see the pattern. Eat something that you think is breakfast of champions and no sugar on it and see what happens. Actually, Stanford did this. Stanford did this and they found that people that were considered healthy actually had very high sugar spikes on, drum roll please, cornflakes. Yeah. They had diabetic sugar spikes on cornflakes. Yeah. So um, that was a fairly recent, I think it might've been 2018. So. Yeah. So, so you, I don't I don't you, think anybody's really gotten away with it. We've eaten badly and I don't think we've all gotten away with it. It's a super widespread problem then. And even if you don't get a, a diagnosis like we did um, mm -hmm. of something, it sounds like you think it's a, a, a societal level problem. I mean, yes. I, I agree. Thinking, kind of focusing down on ADHD spectrum illnesses and even autism spectrum mm -hmm. illnesses, um, what, what kind of improvements have you seen with lifestyle psychiatry in, in those areas beyond your own experience? Okay, so um, I have only, the, the only people that I've really been able to um, convince to at least try keto breakfast, which is what I start everyone on, um, are fairly high functioning people. But here's what I find out. Uh, a lot of them want to go full on keto. As soon as they have experienced the, the lack of hunger until lunch, I tell them, introduce your carbs at lunch because you're a carb burner. If you don't do that by three o'clock, you're probably at the wall. Um, so just go easy on it. And I would frankly change one meal at a time because people have had millions of meals up until then. <laughs> And they are, they are, you know, that 10,000 hour theory where if you get 10,000 hours in on something, you're kind of an expert on it. We are experts on bad eating now. <laughs> so, so it takes a while for people to, to change. This is a huge change I'm asking for, even for one meal. But what they're telling me is that they're thinking more clearly. They, they feel satisfied with their food and they have more energy. Who doesn't want that? 
All right. So, um, so in terms of the practicing of, of psychiatry, is it more about um, the mood effects than, uh, say, uh, results on specific uh, spectrum of illnesses? It's all intertwined. Um, there's a theory that, for example, depression, which is probably, depression anxiety, I think, is probably the bread and butter of psychiatry. These are the people that we see. And it turns out that, uh, that a lot of these people have uh, things in common with medical illness. It's called malaise. Malaise is very much like depression. Uh, malaise is depression with a physical, uh, with a physical attribution on it. <laughs> so when people see someone who looks depressed in the hospital, they call it malaise. If somebody sees someone who's depressed in a psychiatric clinic, it's called depression. And what we're finding is that there's some underlying features to both of these. And the big one is, is inflammation. And if we can tamp down inflammation, which is something a ketogenic diet does very well, then people feel better. And so, um, yeah, so fatigue. So the psychiatrist will ask, do you have sleep disturbance? Yes. Do you have a lack of energy? Yes. Do things not feel like they're fun anymore? Yes. Do you have a lack of concentration? Yes. Do you see where I'm going with this? And you just told me your concentration's better, right? Oh, it's, uh, it's night and day. I feel like I've got a turbocharged brain now. And I, also, I sometimes felt like I had it, you know, through childhood and, and adult, early adulthood, but it was up and down and I just couldn't put my finger on it. And I never had the, uh, I never had anyone say to me, you know, mm -hmm. you are what you eat isn't just a worn out cliche. Um, you know, yes. you should, you should try some of this out. So, um, I mean, we've had uh, Dr. Ilona Gross on the podcast from Keto Swiss, and she's more or less healed her um, terrible migraine problems and um, actually started the company Keto Swiss uh, to, um, to sell uh, ketones um, of a very high quality to people who maybe either need to supplement to up their ketone level or maybe um, are are so uh, old or infirm or young that they can't necessarily switch to a ketogenic diet very easily. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we spoke about how various mental health problems and epilepsy and migraines may all come from quite a similar um, lack of um, energy in the brain or excess inflammation yes. Um, yes. leading to similar pathways. Um, have you tried any... Uh, ketone supplements for yourself or your patients? I have not. Um, but something I want to remark on, um, keto is now being studied for multiple sclerosis and a number of other uh, neurological diseases. Okay, and you probably noticed the shake in my head. I developed dystonia back while I was in the Air Force, probably toward the end of my, my time there. And I still have it. So I can't say that it it probably cures every kind of neurological problem. That's why my head jitters. Um, but I think it helps. And actually my dystonia has gotten a little better. I don't know if it comes and goes. Um, but I, I find that the more strict I am about it, 
the better off I am. And the more strict my patients are, the better off they are. And they even benefit from one meal, which is, I think it should be studied. I think that should be studied because I think that is a um, kind of a way of breaking the ice with the patient and, and asking them what they want for their life. Well, I want more energy. I want to be able to concentrate. I want this and that. And then, um, all right. So now, so now I'm going to tell you something about a neurological condition that happened to one of my patients who um, basically was complaining of brain fog, brain fog. And we now know that persons with uh, type 2 diabetes uh, often complain of brain fog. Um, so this gentleman, I told him go full on keto. You know, I just didn't, you know, I said, okay, look, I don't know if you have diabetes or not, but I'm going to put a, I put on an Abbott Freestyle Libre uh, continuous glucose monitor. And I said, we're going to give you a week on this, and then we're going to reconvene. We're going to take a look at your results. And um, a lot of my lectures are online, so you'll actually see this. It's pretty remarkable. So he had brain fog. And he could not concentrate his way out of a paper bag, basically. And he was in IT, you know, so he's a very technical industry. And his brain is a stock in trade. So I basically put him on the continuous glucose monitor. And let me tell you, I saw sugar like I've never seen before in that thing. In fact, his sugars went so high after he had Thai food. By the way, Thai food can be very sugary. Um, so high that it actually went off the scale and the instrument could not measure it. It went well over 350. And if I had to trace that curve, I would wonder if it went to 500. I mean, it was bad. So I showed it to him and I said, look, this I think is the source of your brain fog. So I will tell you how to get rid of it. Tell, let me tell you, he was motivated. His job was at stake. Um, he was still doing fine, but you know, he could see the writing on the wall. So I said, okay, so let's do another week, but this time we're going to get rid of all this stuff. And I'm going to send you to dietdoctor.com, which is one of the places I like to send people and my patients. Um, and you will know what keto is. And I want you to start, start it, just do it. All right. And so, um, and I may not have used the word keto back then. So if you're listening, patient, I understand. Anyway, okay, so a week later, he looked almost completely normal. He was within the target range that I had set for him, except for maybe one or two occasions did he have actually what would be considered a high glucose. Um, crazy to think that this could happen in, in a week, right? And his thinking was vastly improved, presumably. That's what happened. No more brain fog. And he said, thank you, doctor. Have a nice life. And he left. <laughs> yeah. It's really kind of ironic that I uh, was working in physics and engineering and was, I'd started a PhD in physics. Uh -huh. And my brain fog was worse than ever. And I was lucky that my supervisor uh, had healed his chronic fatigue syndrome ME by changing how he ate. He was basically told he wouldn't work again. Um, oh and then he, he read uh, Good Calories, Bad Calories. And yes. six months later, he was running 10Ks again. Mm -hmm. And um, so he was able to point me in the right direction of things to you know, look up the research. And 
I had a similar turnaround. What was ironic was that um, my brain was meant to be my uh, moneymaker in science. And then as soon as I got it back, I left science to start a food company. Um, uh, I think I'm, I'm getting to people in the right way now. So that's, that's, that's what it's all about. But thinking about the research side of things, I'm dead interested in a guy called Kali Reichelt, who, um, mm-hmm. for those who don't know, was a Norwegian uh, medical researcher, and he's best yes. known for his work on the opioid peptoid, peptides in um, milk protein and wheat protein, and wrote up brilliant case studies on removing grains and dairy from children's diets and how it affected their behaviour. And is that, is that an area that you've looked into, and how much do you think kind of grain and dairy peptides can affect mental health? Okay, so... Um... It's interesting about dairy peptides. Um, there was a, um, the theory goes that there was a, um, a mutation introduced into cattle about 5,000 years ago. And it's an A1 mutation. And the product that it makes, uh, I believe it's an enzyme that breaks down the milk. Somebody out there listening to me probably knows more about this than I do. But, um, but basically, this um, A1 mutation uh, made it such that it, the, the uh, milk had a, would produce a product when it was metabolized called, called beta-caseomorphin-7. And that is very much like morphine. It has an action that's somewhat like morphine. It can cause brain fog, it can cause uh, sleepiness. And in fact, that's why actually there's someplace, I don't know if it's Australia, New Zealand or where, there's actually a milk called sleepy time milk. And I'm gonna guess what they have is A1A1 cattle. So that means that, that both, uh, the, both parents contributed an A1 to the calf. And so the calf grew up to have A1A1. So now you have super A1 and now, yeah, you're oh, sleepy and you have brain fog, so nice nap. Anyway, so A2 is what uh, humans give, what hamsters give, what uh, goats give. We don't have those, uh, the alleles that uh, these cattle do. And the important thing I think to know in America is that most of our milk is Holstein and all those Holsteins are A1 cows. Yeah. Unless someone's really made an effort to, to breed an A2 bull, A2, A2 bull into the cattle. It would take a few generations to get A2, A2. So now, uh, fast forward to me, I, I get A2 milk. I get A2 milk off the shelf and it's not uh, homogenized. So it creams, the cream comes to the top. And uh, I really think I feel a difference, but I don't know. So yes, uh, to make a short story long, which I did, uh, you, the um, A1 is definitely, I think, a problem. But I don't know if A2 is a problem. I don't think we had enough of it. The Jersey cattle usually have one, A1 and A2. Guernsey has less A2, but I don't see much in the way of Guernsey, or, or less A1, sorry. Guernsey has less A1, more A2, but I don't see much uh, Guernsey milk anymore. I saw it as a kid um, way back, uh, but not anymore. So um, what was the other type of peptide that you were asking about? Was it from plants? Yeah, from, from gluten mainly. So yes. gliadin. Um, gliadin, yes. Yeah. 
So uh, back in the 50s, uh, in the US, we had wheat that was shoulder high. And uh, it didn't seem to cause a lot of trouble. I think the uh, number of people with celiac disease based on uh, serum from uh, military that was stored from that time uh, was about one in 500. All right. Now we have less than one in 100. Okay. And so what changed? Well, the wheat changed for sure. Uh, I don't know if that's why, but it's a good guess, I think. And what happened was uh, you would have small wheat heads and tall uh, wheat. And what the people did, and this was not genetic engineering, this is not uh, one species put into another species. That's not what happened. They just used some really crazy chemicals to start get them, getting them to reproduce uh, their DNA over and over again. So instead of having one set of DNA, they might have three or four, I suppose, whatever. I, I, like I say, I'm, I don't have my details straight. Uh, so, but in any case, what they did is they bred it to put more energy into the wheat heads and less into the stalk. So the wheat heads are bigger now and they have more gliadin, they have more gluten, um, and there's more chance uh, for trouble because it's pretty intense uh, wheat products. I've actually, I, you know, since I had this uh, celiac illness myself, I started talking to a lot of doctors about this and I gave a, a talk in Northern California where I uh, talked about my viewpoints on uh, wheat and you know what happened to it and things like that. And uh, lots of doctors came up to me and said, you know, this is exactly what I'm seeing here, but it's really interesting when my patients go on vacation, they can eat European wheat. That, is very that was back in about 2005. Yeah, he said it's, they don't, get, don't seem to get sick. But here, they come back here and they start getting sick again. So, um, so anyway, there's a theory. Yeah. And there's actually a book out there called Wheat Belly, if anyone's interested. And it describes uh, the theory about what actually happened to the wheat. And maybe you'll get the right story from that one. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's just a rough of, of what happened. And I also think, frankly, that we should be careful with leafy greens too and uh, other things. Uh, for example, uh, cauliflower didn't even exist, I think, before 2000 years ago. It was definitely not a paleo plant. And now we're starting to do more than ever. And farmers have been saying for quite a while now that when they give uh, cruciferous vegetables, such as cauliflower and broccoli, to their animals, they always dose them with extra iodine because it's a goitrogen. So I have some concerns about that, even though I love the concept of using cauliflower in a pizza crust. Uh, and for once in a while, it's probably fine. But if you're gonna do it a lot, I really think you need to bone up on your iodine information and find out how much you need. Uh, because I do fear that, that we're gonna get into some kind of trouble with it. Another situation is with like, people say, well, I can get iron from my greens. And in fact, there are a lot of um, uh, nu uh, nutritional uh, experts who say, yeah, blend, you know, like red meat with greens and you'll get more iron. And I think that's true. But the, the leafy green in and of itself, such as spinach, if it has a lot of oxalate in it, 
It can cause a lot of trouble, like kidney stones, if eaten in enough quantity. Um, but more than that, the oxalate is going to grab minerals. It's, it's basically going to bind to minerals. And so even if the spinach has all kinds of minerals like calcium and everything in it, uh, the oxalates in the spinach are going to bind that and maybe even bind it from other foods that you're combining with it. So, um, so we have to be careful with plants too. Plants don't really want us to eat them. They wouldn't mind if we swallowed their seeds and then scattered their seeds across the country. That would be fine with them. But as far as eating their greens or anything that has to do with their, their life support, yeah, they're not crazy about it. And so they do have some ways of trying to protect themselves, such as signaling to other plants to increase the amount of anti-nutrients. Uh, when exposed to um, grazing and things like that by cattle. Cattle have their counter measures in place, uh, but humans don't really. So, <clears throat> and my theory is, <coughs> excuse me, that humans are basically carnivores that have adapted plants to them, to themselves. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's kind of my set position as well. Um, after a few years of looking at the evidence and feeling what works for me. And I keep some plants in my diet because I like the variety and the flavor mm -hmm. and the fun you can have with it. And I try and monitor whether there's a negative effect and you know, mm -hmm. um, any, any that I feel uh, are detrimental, then I, I try to minimize. But um, of course, everyone has to make that own decision for themselves. I, whenever I talk about wheat, I think one of the most remarkable things, and I share it quite often on my social media is, um, a comment from one of the posts on uh, Peter Dobromilski's blog Hyperlipid on a, a really old post uh, about, um, about, about gluten. And it was from a friend of his who had had a baby and was breastfeeding. And Peter had suggested that she might um, cut out gluten and see if that had helped with a few things. And she yes. did. And... Uh -huh. Um, her baby's colic disappeared in a couple of days and the, yeah. the so the baby had been um, you know keeping her up all night screaming all day after every feed it was just a nightmare you know what you, you know new parents go through it can sometimes be hellish and it should be a great time and um, she told she went to the midwife she was really excited and she went to the, the midwife of the health visitor and said look I cut out wheat and my baby's like a different baby um, isn't that remarkable? And the the, the midwife said, um, oh yeah, I mean, it, any midwife worth their salt knows that, but we can't tell people that because we can't say that people should cut out heart-healthy whole grains, quote-unquote. Oh, no. And so this seems to be somewhat widespread knowledge, yet it's not being um, given to, uh, to mothers. And that's, to me, that's one of the biggest areas because you know, it might be half of all kids are, are, are really um, going through a terrible time that they can't understand. And, it, and a lot of it might be due to, due to this problem that there's a decent chunk of the population seem to have quite a bad issue with, with wheat. Wow. Wow, that's profound. Well, and, and from a child psychiatric viewpoint, uh, those moments are bonding moments. And when it's interfered with in any way, shape or form, and by the way, it can be interfered with by low iron too. And I, I attribute that to uh, people not eating enough uh, red meat. Not the colic part, but the bonding part. 
where the baby is not behaving correctly, but maybe not be fussy, but maybe just kind of apathetic, and the mom becomes apathetic too. So there's there's a, a communication that happens between mom and child, and it's almost like they're one creature uh, when they're making eye contact and when they're interacting. Uh, it's really important that they, they make that kind of a bond, uh, but if they can't, uh, sometimes that uh, disruption lasts, and it can really interfere with the child development. So, um, so yeah, so now uh, along with iron, which causes um, apathy and uh, <clears throat> fatigue in the mom and apathy and fatigue in the child and also causes developmental disabilities if left to go on too long. Uh, I will also put uh, wheat on my list. I had no idea and I have uh, some pregnant patients. I will let them know. I'll send the, the um... The, the post and the I'll, the I'll link the um, the post and the comment in the show notes as well, and I'll send them through to you. Um, Thank you so much. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I kind of um, out of left field question. Oregon yeah. recently became the first state to legalize psychedelic mushrooms, and there's uh, Amsterdam over here in the Netherlands um, is is similar. Um, mm -hmm. Psychedelics are currently being studied by Johns Hopkins University, Imperial College London, mm -hmm. and others as mental health therapies. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it's kind of a food. Do you see a future for them at all? It depends on what the study outcomes are. It's the same with marijuana. If they, if they legalize marijuana at the federal level, we'll have more accurate studies. Because right now, studies are highly restricted because it is considered to be illegal. In fact, it's up there with heroin. Nobody's studying heroin. So uh, yeah, it's, that's the kind of uh, schedule they've given it. So, uh, and I am seeing lots of problems with marijuana here. Lots and lots. And people don't realize it's coming from the marijuana. Uh, so uh, it's things like cyclical vomiting with lots of hospital admission, admissions. It's not having to, happening to every marijuana smoker. Um, I'm going to backtrack here. Uh, the mushrooms will probably become commercialized and then they won't be what they were before. So there has to be some thorough study done on that. On the other hand, um, I have heard anecdotal reports of people becoming much better after uh, having a hallucinogen, uh, but having maybe a hard time during the hallucinogenic experience and needing a coach. Um, so yes, there may be some some uh some place for them but if it turns but like lsd which is a different kind of hallucinogen i think i think it's serotonin based um lsd actually some people would uh freak out and jump out a window i mean you know so uh that break with reality is psychotic and it has to be taken seriously um so and yeah and some people actually have breaks with reality uh because uh, marijuana is also hallucinogen. So um, yes, I think, I think there's a place for any drug that has been studied and found to where the benefits outweigh the risks and where they know how to produce it safely and help the patient to have a positive experience uh, as much as they can. So um, that could be turn out to be a glorious thing. It could be spiritual. A lot of people who have gone, who have experimented with these drugs, have reported that they feel more connected with other people. And I mean, it could be a profound experience. 
but I don't think we know enough about them yet to just jump in. Yeah, that makes sense. I think uh, caution advised, and I like your point about how it can become commercialized. Like, um, you know, you hear particularly about the the marijuana that you get nowadays is bred for potency um, in a way that, you know, 40 years ago would have been, you know, one or 10% the strength. And that's really a different animal. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Talking about drugs, what place do drugs have, do you think, in psychiatry, ideally? And, you know, specifically to thinking about um, your own practice where you, uh, use lifestyle psychiatry? Well, I, I think just like being uh, convinced that cereal is, is breakfast food, I think a lot of people think that you go to a psychiatrist, you get a drug. And uh, very few, but every once in a while, there's somebody who thinks they're going to get a really good drug and they're deeply disappointed. Anyway, so, uh, <laughs> so anyway, um, I think that until we start getting back to basics and feeding really good food from the get-go, I think we're going to see the um, result of not having good nutrition during critical developmental periods. That's it's huge. It's interesting because I read this one, uh, uh, I think it was about ADD in France, and they said, well, we really don't have much of that but we do notice that the the american kids are more aggressive they're more active they're more overall overall right and and if you look at the quality of of lunch foods that are often uh served there you see really fine i mean hey i'm ready for fine dining i'll have lunch with the kids uh you know they've got the fats and they've got the variety and they've got the fish and they've got the meat and they've got you know it uh, if it hasn't changed, that's what they were serving. And um, these kids, so kids that I work with uh, will have maybe a uh, Fruit Loops or some kind of uh, meal like that, which used to have the uh, check of approval for nutrition, which was supported by uh, universities and, uh, and of course, uh, the uh, the industries that were producing it. Uh, so anyway, uh, so it had this smart check of approval because I think it had like fiber in it. But if you look at everything else in it, uh, not too long ago, uh, there was a very good study done uh, using several food colorings and also in combination with some preservatives. And what they found is that overall kids that never had attention deficit problems, had problems after they had eaten the, the um, colored meal. So, uh, so that's a caveat right there. So what exactly are we looking at? And then think of it this way, your child has a metabolism too. And so they're eating their, their Fruit Loops or whatever colored cereal, doesn't have to be Fruit Loops, uh, with skim milk. And it's sugar on sugar because the starch is sugar, which we overlook. And then there's the added sugar. And then there's the lactose sugar. So he's got basically a sugar meal and that might sustain him uh, for a little while, but he's gonna drop and he's gonna drop hard. Chances are good he's gonna have a real uh, decline in blood sugar sometime uh, anywhere from 
two to five hours later. It's, it is going to be significant. And this is going to be a kid who's hard to manage. So I think what the schools do here is they try to introduce a mid-morning snack, trying to sustain them, but a lot of times they're sustaining them with the same thing, 1% milk, a cookie, you know, sort of thing. And so the kids are going up and down all day, up and down, up and down, up and down. And it's very hard for them because their frontal lobes aren't very well developed. Uh, they aren't going to reason out, gee, I feel bad. No, they're going to act it out. They're going to show you how they feel. And that's going to make them the bad kid. So, it, you know, it goes on and on and on. So this may be what the French were seeing if the Americans were eat, not eating the French food. They may have been seeing kids get really kind of like energetic and a little over the top. Um, and it may be because of the food colorings they're eating. Maybe, although I don't know if the French have food colorings now. I know Britain got rid of those food colorings, by the way. Instead of red, red dye number five, they now use beet juice. So uh, they, they've changed it. You can change it. But I'm just saying that the kind of food that we feed kids and that we think are good for them, uh, you know, colored fish shaped stuff and, you know, uh, candies that are loaded with food colorings. Um, really are going to unsettle the blood sugar and probably cause trouble just from the food coloring themselves. Yes, it, cer it certainly was a problem for me and my mum talks about how she would notice we would be like, you know, um, we would go crazy if we were allowed these things. Uh, the, the, the sort of unnatural colors, as you might call them, um, which were available in the 80s. Um, Maybe we can finish up talking about uh, the discussion around meat versus plants. And mm -hmm. firstly, with where they are in the mental health um, discussion, but also we were talking before about being in better harmony with the natural world um, mm -hmm. and where you think meat and plants uh, come in there. So what about in the mental health discussion? You mentioned goitrogens and we've talked about wheat potentially being a problem um, but what about meat versus other plants okay so can I start with an ecological perspective sure I think because I know that um, there probably there might be some some vegans or some people who have vegans in their family who are listening to our conversation <laughs> Just something. anyway we're listening to our conversation and I want to address this because I think people do that not necessarily because they feel better on that diet, but that they feel like they are contributing to the world. They really do it out of the goodness of their heart. They are concerned about animal welfare, right? So you heard earlier that I, I think humans are um, carnivores and actually we started our, our hominid ancestors that contributed to our gene pool started eating meat 3.4 million years ago and if you look at cave paintings you don't see them uh, people chasing broccoli and I'm being ridiculous here or growing gardens what you see is wild animals and that is pretty much what we if you believe in evolution that's what we evolved on so um, so and actually we bred dogs for that the first dogs were hounds and they were for hunting so that was <laughs> this is beautiful cave painting of this gentleman. It looks like he's carrying an atlatl, which is an ancient uh, spear throwing device that gave spear, spears great power 
against large fauna such as mammoths. Um, so he's walking behind his dogs. His dogs are all in midair, stretched completely out, just sailing after this large beast. And you can see that he is not running. See, our bodies are actually made to run after animals. We have uh, sweat glands now. We have less hair. Uh, we um, are standing upright. We are perfect for pacing after animals. This is called um, uh, persistent daytime hunting. And that is what we did when we had no weapons. We would uh, run down the animal until it overheated, but we would not overheat because we had air conditioning. We had all that uh, water coursing uh, down our bodies. There's so a brilliant video of this on YouTube. I think it might have been the BBC who, who filmed yes. a, a person actually doing that. Yes. And there's a remarkable it, it, reverence for the animal before he kills yes. it. He acknowledges that he is taking a life. And I think, uh, you know, I'll let you finish your point, of course, at length, but um, there's, a, there's a way to be respectful and still eat meat, I think. Exactly. No, exactly. And in fact, it's interesting. Um, if you watch this series called Alone, and it's about people surviving by themselves with cameras on them all the time. They're using it themselves uh, in the Arctic wilderness or Vancouver Island in some of the more challenging climates. Um, when they get an animal, they will thank the animal. And I think that's in a way what these other people are doing. I think it's in our souls to thank the life-giving animal because when you're up against it, when you know that your life depends on this animal, uh, there's just something, it's, I would say, I would dare to say, I'm, I'm not a very uh, religious person, but I would dare to say it's a very sp spiritual thing. It's something that, that humans recognize. And, and you also see um, worship of animals or evidence of that in Native Americans. And you see it, you know, you know that they respect the animal that they that has given them life and it's it's huge we can do that too and we're starting to actually we're starting to actually help uh use animals to heal the earth so anyway we're hunters if you look at our gi systems our gi systems are nowhere anywhere like the other primates that are closest relations to us uh, we have a much more small intestine much less colon they have much more colon much less small intestine and it is radical. If you go to my um, at Ann Childers MD Twitter site, uh, it's all posted there for you. You can take a look. I mean, to me, there's just no argument there. If you look at the dog stomach, domestic dog stomach, remember I said we, we bred them to help us. Um, they actually bred themselves after a while. It's, it's really interesting, the history of dog, but I won't go into it. Uh, they kind of bred themselves for the tasks that we needed them for. It's weird. Anyway, their stomach cell for cell is almost exactly like ours and is nothing like the omnivores, the pig, the rat, not at all. And you'll see that on my, on my site there too. So anyway, so here we are in my estimation, world according to Childers, we're carnivores. All right. So now we have this ethical problem because we've got all this methane and CO2 in the air. Methane after 10 years turns to CO2. We have, however, some great information 
Okay, and, and so wait a minute, I'm gonna go back also to the vegans and vegetarians who are trying so hard to save the earth by, not, by eating plants and not eating meat and also saving animals and giving them a, a proper life. Uh, so anyway, so the Great Plains had up to maybe 50 million buffalo. And these buffalo were producing tons of methane and they were roaming on, drum roll please, 12 feet of rich topsoil, which is now exhausted because, you know, we've, we've pretty much done it. Now we just put chemicals on it and something will grow. Um, but back then it was rich topsoil that was uh, supporting what they called the Great Plains. The Great Plains were all kinds of plants. It's not like just grass plants. It's all kinds of plants that were living off that topsoil and they have roots that go 12 feet down. Impressive. And they're stabilizing that topsoil. So when the rumbling feet of the buffalo churn that earth, uh, it doesn't ruin it because the plants can grow back again. They already have the roots and those roots are trapping carbon and the microorganisms around them are trapping carbon. And as the plant grows, it's trapping carbon. So the methane from a buffalo goes up into the air in 10 years it's CO2 and, and then it becomes a plant. So that is the cycle. That's the natural cycle. What we've done is we've put all these animals that could be putting manure down on the ground and could be uh, drawing birds and other wildlife to collect the insects that collect on the manure. And then those animals put down their droppings, adding more nitrogen to the soil. And then that manure gets kicked around and it uh, composts. And then uh, the plants grow and then the migration comes again. That is how it's done, you see. But what we've done is put them in uh, concentrated animal feed operations, CAFOs. And these animals are eating corn and the corn is destroying their stomachs and it's making them very sick. So we feed them as fast as we can so they don't die before they get on the conveyor belt to be slaughtered. Uh, so these animals end up having a miserable life, not like the happy buffalo, which the na many Native Americans, the Plains Indians lived off of and respected. So these, these animals get no respect. They get no respect and they have a lousy life, all right? Are they grass-fed? Yes, they are for the first uh, months of their lives, but then they go into the cave feedlots. So if you see, uh, these animals are pasture-raised. No, you haven't learned anything about that animal. What you wanna know is what the last days of his life were like, preferably the last six months, okay? So, so there's animal cruelty right there. Um, what some innovative farmers, ranchers, and um, environmentalists are doing now is they're trying to use cattle the way the buffalo helped the earth. Instead of keeping them in a uh, paddock with one type of food and letting them eat until the, the plant is dead, they have like a one bite rule that the animals bite down to a place where the plant will 100% survive and then they move on. Then they're moved to another paddock it's full of plant. This basically is left to, um, to compost and to go through the cycles that the buffaloes allowed for the Great Plains. So, um, so they're doing that and, and, the, and the animals are churning up the soil and so uh, they're not allowing it to just sit there and get crusty. Uh, the animals are doing a whole lot of farming while they're in the paddock and then they move on. 
So uh, what this has allowed us to do is to raise really healthy animals. And animals are really psychologically healthy too, because I am sure being crowded in a CAFO is not what they had in mind when they were born and not what mother nature had in mind either. So now they're actually happier, they're more content. And then we now have also, with the help of people like Temple Grandin, we now have cattle gates that are not scary for them, that, that if, the, if the ranchers don't change the gates and if the gates are well uh, engineered the way that Temple Grandin does, then they naturally follow the path because it's in their nature to do that. And once, and then there's humane kill. So they step up on the platform. They don't know why they're there. They're not scared and their life is ended and that's it. So if we raise enough cattle and if we compartmentalize them properly, like paddock grazing is one, is one model. It's just one model. I'm sure there are more. Um, then we can have our cake and eat it too. We can, we can repair the earth, we can restore the carbon cycle, and, um, and we can have a good quality meat because in my humble opinion from everything I've read, the fats in these meats are superior to CAFO fat, superior. The thing we're looking at, that I'm looking at mostly is <clears throat> omega-3 fatty acids. And uh, so, Omega-6 has to be in balance with omega-3. We do need omega-6, but what we're getting now is too much omega-6. In a wild animal, you might have uh, three parts omega-6 to one part omega-3. In a uh, well-pastured uh, animal, you, you, you get similar ratios as you get to wild animals. But if you uh, look at an animal that's on a CAFO who's eating corn, um, they probably got maybe 13 to 1. Now, omega-6 is the inflammatory moiety of the balance. And so now inflammation is, uh, is out of balance with anti-inflammation. And I would suggest that that could cause trouble. Uh, there was one study done with uh, humans Americans, and what they found is it was 20 to 1. So maybe that was coming back then from corn oil or something, which I don't see used a lot now. I think it's more canola. But, but I'm just saying that uh, we have other sources besides meat of these uh, fatty acids. And when those fatty acids are out of balance, it's bad for our health. Yeah, Brad Marshall was on the podcast. He was doing amazing things. He's got a blog fire in a bottle and a company that sells um his uh pastured pigs that are finished using um something that isn't corn i can't remember now off the top of my head whether it's barley or something else basically there's no or there's very little uh, inflammatory omega-6 fat persisting into the pig's fat and therefore into our diet which is brilliant and that's something i'm working on with the farmer here for hopefully next year um, mm -hmm. I, I think that's a huge issue and I am optimistic in one sense you know there's there's a there's the film um, is it called Kiss the Ground uh, yes right? I saw it mm -hmm. um, Woody Harrelson <laughs> vegan of 30 years mm -hmm. narrating yes. a film that advocates for what you were just talking about for mm -hmm. well-raised uh, uh, bovines or at least ruminants mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of sheep over here in the UK um, you know, to actually 
improve the, the the carbon situation and the and the the soil health, and we can grow plants and have animals at the same time. And then, like you say, have a cake and eat it. What I'm less optimistic about is the corporate capture of the um, the, the food cycle and the idea that um, patentable and um, highly profitable uh, green and uh, le legume products are being touted mm -hmm. as a as an environmental solution to what is mm -hmm. what you were saying is, is is really just another industrial problem of the CAFOs and that mm -hmm. the real solution of um, a well planned um, terrain appropriate mixture of plants and animals is being subverted into something quite dark which is that we're being told that highly processed pea flowers and and chickpea flowers and soy based mm -hmm. products or a patentable lab meat quote unquote is mm -hmm. better for us in the environment and i i think there's a battle going on right now mm -hmm. i i think one thing i would uh just uh ask people to look into is um, dog food. Because like I said, the canine stomach, I think canines share a lot, of, not everything in common with us, but a lot. And I think we can learn from them uh, more than we can lab rats and mice. They, those are not the creatures, their, their metabolism, the, the way that they, they digest things, they are fermenters, we are not. Um, no, I don't think that tells us the information we need to know. But if you look right now, you'll find out that veterinarians are very concerned about um, heart disease in, in dogs now, ever since uh, the, uh, in the grain-free foods, grain-free foods. And many of these foods are using uh, legumes. They're using legumes in the foods. And this is a, a new introduction. Dogs don't eat, uh, canines don't eat legumes in the wild. Uh, so now they're, they're, they've switched, they've switched from corn and wheat corn wheat to now legumes, some tapioca. I don't know if that's a problem. But here's the thing about legumes. Legumes have um, lectins in them. And these lectins are anti-nutrients. And uh, these lectins can cause problems. And I'd urge anyone to, to look into what's happening with the dogs right now. I think they're close to find out, finding out what it is. It may not be the legumes, but right now that's the that's the primary suspect. Interesting. I guess we yeah. have to wait to see how all that shakes out. But you know, you hear anecdotally about some people doing poorly eating lots of legumes, digestively and mentally. Mm -hmm. So uh, legumes also need to be carefully handled, and this is something that I learned from Weston A. Price. Uh, in my family, it was already traditional to soak beans uh, overnight before cooking them. But you can bet that a lot of food companies are not going to take the time. They're just going to go right to the product. Um, soaking the beans may lower the, uh, the lectin somewhat. And you might, there, there are actually some sources online. In fact, you might want to look at Weston A. Price and see what they have on, on legumes and lectins because they seem to uh, study this. In any case, um, it may lower it enough to not be harmful, but when your GI system is giving you gas, uh, something's gone wrong here. And it's probably because whatever it is that you ate uh, couldn't be well digested. 
and it means that it's going to be a shift in your microbiome to try to accommodate that. And um, yeah, so uh, yeah, so so I I really you know if somebody offers me some bean dip, I won't turn it down. But I just will not make it an everyday thing, right? If somebody offers me some hummus, I will hope that they soak their chick chickpeas, but whatever. And I'll eat it and say yum because I really love it. But I won't I won't eat it maybe more than once or twice a year. I, I do think that lectins are a problem and I urge people to read about lectins. Lectins and phytates, probably some of the chief things in our food uh, that uh, that many of us who want to be healthier need to be careful with. And then oxalates. Oxalates in, um, they're high oxalate greens and lower oxalate greens. And so, but oxalates, um, yeah, those are the, those are the nutrition stealers. Mm, yeah, I've seen a graph of um, the amount of zinc that makes it into the, mm -hmm. the, uh, the bloodstream from eating oysters, either with beans or without. And with beans, it's basically zero. It's, uh, it's remarkable yeah. how they, they leach these. Um, yeah. And that if, you do, if you're having them with every meal, then you can see how that could mm -hmm. really be a problem. Um, yeah, wheat bran is a problem, and, and everybody thought that was really healthy, so they just loaded all these breads with bran. Interesting. Okay, so uh, that reminds me, Terry Graham of University of Guelph, uh, he uh, did some experiments with uh, barley, wheat and barley, wheat alone, I think. I may be getting this mixed up, so just look up. Uh, sourdough and terry graham not just graham because then they'll give you some kind of graham cracker or something but sourdough and terry graham and university of guelph you'll find his studies they're very interesting uh bottom line he found that um the uh whole wheat wheat with bran in it caused uh higher sugar spikes than uh white or sourdough and these tendency towards sugar spikes lasted well into the day, even after lunch where no bread was uh, served. Very interesting. No idea why that is. I have no clue what the mechanism could possibly be, but this is what he found. And he also found that um, the uh, sprouted breads did better uh, in terms of sugar, blood sugars than uh, the wheat bread. And the white bread actually did better than the wheat bread. And the sourdough did the best of all. Very interesting. That's something yeah. we can definitely link in the show notes. Um, I know you're uh, writing a chapter on mood and keto for Tim Noakes' book, which is due out next year. Maybe you can tell us a bit about that. Yes. Uh, I tell you, every, this is my fourth textbook chapter. Every time I write one of these, I get like a college education. <laughs> usually at the end of it it's like my education is oh boy i'm never going to do this again and then somebody asked me sure <laughs> <laughs> so i never remember the hard part so i'm sorry noakes foundation for being late with this it's just me uh it happens and i'm sorry anyway so uh but fortunately i got money in time so we're okay um i got an amazing education on this one and uh, it took me deep into the brain in places that I, I didn't know about. 
and it was interesting. Uh, apparently, um, uh, mood disorders have a lot of things in common. One, one I already mentioned, uh, which is really huge, and that's inflammation. And uh, a lot of times it'll even uh, show up on a C-reactive protein, but not always. Um, but anyway, so uh, mood has a lot in common with malaise. Mood disorders have a lot in common with malaise. And malaise being sickness, the sickness depression that you get that makes you not want to leave the house or even leave your bed. Okay, so um, what they found is uh, when they did some studies uh, using a ketogenic diet uh, with people who had these uh, mood disorders with malaise-like features, what they found is that uh, there are these tiny little uh, cells called glia cells, microglia, and they are there to monitor for uh, signs of inflammation or anything that's going wrong with the other cells. And when they pick up inflammation, they take action. And it's either a teardown action where they're getting rid of maybe cells that have died and, and they're, they're moving it away, or they're doing a buildup action where they're trying to actually make more connections between cells. And what they found is that a keto diet actually pushed those cells toward buildup and away from teardown. Um, what, what the bottom line of that is, I don't know. It's kind of like having an inflammatory and non-inflammatory moiety to omega-3. Uh, is it positive to have more buildup? Uh, yet to see, but what we do see is that uh, a lot of people feel better. And I see that in my, uh, in my office as well. Another interesting idea about uh, keto is keto was originally used in children for epilepsy and used to uh, prevent seizures in children that had great seizures. So uh, some of these children would go into remission and even if they didn't go into remission, these seizures were cut way down. And I would say if anyone listening to this or their loved one has epilepsy, please go to Charlie Foundation, learn about using keto for seizures. Anyway, I digress, so I'm gonna get back on track here. Uh, so basically, um, it, it was used for seizures. And then things like Tegretol and Depakote came along and those were uh, anti-seizure medications used to this day by neurologists to prevent seizures. Also Lamictal, that's another one that's often used. So, all right. So now psychiatrists have adopted them as mood stabilizers. Right? So the question in my mind, is keto a mood stabilizer? Could it possibly be that, you see? And I don't have enough data to say one way or the other, but I find the idea intriguing. Well, I'm looking forward to, to reading it. Um, it's it's kind of nice that Noakes Foundation's um, bringing out a book of uh, you know, written you know, by various people who, who, are, who are specialists. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that. Do you know if the book's got a working title? No, not yet. Well, looking forward to, I don't to know seeing yet. that. Mm -hmm. um, and where can people find you online? Um, where do you want them to find you? Okay, so probably the place I visit the most, although I'm pretty busy and I apologize to my followers. Um, 
for being a little bit out of there. I just had a lot of projects. But anyway, um, I'm at, at the at sign, uh, Ann Childers MD on Twitter. Uh, that's probably the place where I throw out the most uh, information. I can also be found online at Life Balance, and that's L-I-F as in Frank, E, balance, all together, one word. B as in boy, A-L-A-N-C as in cat, E, N as in Nancy, W, lifebalancenw.com. All right, brilliant. Well, I would urge everyone to go and uh, check out your stuff um, and maybe they can be inspired by it like I have been. Um, I really appreciate you coming on and having the chat. It's been, it's been brilliant. This hour and 40 minutes has flown by and um, I'll, uh, I'll uh, keep in touch about, um, about when the podcast is coming out. Thank you so much, Ali. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and see you next time.